Red meat increases your risk of heart disease. A glass of wine is good for you. Carbs are evil and will lead to a life of sedentary couch surfing. We've all heard these claims about what is good for our health, but what is true? Critically evaluating these studies that serve as the foundation for these claims is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio is regular panelist Richard Campbell of Media Journalism and Film. Rosemary Pennington is away today. Our guest is Dr. David Allison. Dr. Allison is Dean, Distinguished Professor, and Provost Professor at Indiana University in Bloomington. David, thank you so much for being here. Truly my pleasure. So, so David, how did you first get involved in obesity research? I've actually been studying obesity at one level or another since I was an undergraduate. I took a course in my sophomore year titled Human Emotion and Motivation. And in that course, we studied the theories and experiments of Stanley Schachter, who at the time was a very prominent psychological researcher and theorist from Columbia University. And I was struck by the enormous creativity of his studies and how the, his repeated experimentation illustrated the so-called hypothodeductive method of science. He'd, he'd propose a hypothesis. He'd collect some data. It would never work out quite right. He'd refine his hypothesis. <laughs> then he'd collect some more data. And the most creative and interesting experiments involving making clocks go fast and see if that made people feel hungrier sooner and <laughs> things like that. And I, I love the idea that not only could one study obesity from many angles, meaning psychological, physiological, economical, genetics, uh, et cetera, that in my view, one needed to study it from all those different angles to understand it. And that interdisciplinarity and that creativity of the experimental studies uh, is really what attracted me. David, this, uh, this past summer, I, I taught journalism in Kosovo in uh, the capital city, Pristina. And one of the things I noticed was uh, how few overweight people I saw in the capital of Kosovo. And it got me, when I got back, I, I just looked up obesity data and saw that the U.S. was in the, and I can't remember what, what site it was or what study, but it said something like 36% of U.S. adults were obese. In Kosovo, it was, I think, 20 or less than 20%. So just sort of my anecdotal observations confirmed, confirmed there was a difference. But my question for you is, we have this data on obesity for, I think, pretty much every country in the world. Where does it come from? How do we know that this data is, is accurate? And how do you measure, you know, what percentage of the adult population is overweight? How do we know is perhaps the best question you or anybody else can ask situations like this. It is the vital question. In this particular case, how do we know or how we know is as a result of recording heights and weights and calculating something called body mass index or mm -hmm. BMI for short. Um, BMI is calculated as the uh, weight in kilograms divided by the square of height in meters, or mm -hmm. if you're hopelessly stuck in the metric system, <laughs> it's pounds over inches squared and then the whole thing multiplied by 703. Oh, that was devised by a man named Kate Lay, who was a Belgian astronomer statistician 
an epidemiologist back in the late 1800s um, and a wonderful man. Uh, and we still use it today. Some of those weights and heights are self-reported, and that's an additional problem because for places in which they're based on self-report, they tend to underestimate obesity levels, yes, yeah. and some of them are measured. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no one's going to report their, their height is, is less than it is or their, their weight is more than it is. Interestingly, thin men tend to under-report, excuse me, tend to over-report their weight a little bit. Oh, do they? Sometimes, okay. right. Oh, right. Women tend to universally under-report their weight. Uh, men tend to over-report their height a little bit, and they tend to under-report their weight when they're heavy and over-report their weight when they're light. Oh, interesting. So in, in your study, some of the things that I've read, uh, you talk about the difference between data collection and intervention. And that was interesting to me. And I, I, and as long as we're on self-reporting, you talked about when you're trying to measure child, uh, childhood obesity, the self-reporting is often not very reliable there either. Can you talk about uh, data collection, intervention, and, and self-reporting a little more, especially as it relates to childhood obesity? Sure. Self-reporting has a long history of use in obesity research and many other fields. Sometimes it's vital. Sometimes it is valid for collecting data. Uh, often it is a useful clinical tool, even if it's not valid as a scientific tool. Mm -hmm. For example, asking someone to write down what they eat every day is an effective method of helping people eat less and lose weight, mm -hmm. even though it's not a good method of measuring scientifically how much people eat. It turns out not to be valid for that. Um, in terms of the use of the distinction between data collection and intervention, often people look at something like BMI in particular, and we'll get into arguments over whether it's good or not, and before taking a step back and saying, good for what? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that BMI is pretty good if what you want to do is estimate the number of people who are overweight or obese mm -hmm. in a population. Works pretty well for that. However, people sometimes get a little defensive about it and say, well, but you have to remember the numerator of that is just weight or mass. It's not body fat. And so a big, strong NBA player or bodybuilder is going to have a high BMI but not be obese, mm -hmm. to which we reply, well, of course, we understand that anybody would look at such a person and know that. And so from a clinical point of view, that might not be the best way of defining obesity. But for just counting the proportion of the population that's obese, it works just fine. I, I think it's interesting to consider the, the measures that might be used to define obesity for adult populations versus measures that would be used to define obesity in a childhood population. So does, does the BMI metric work when you start thinking about childhood obesity studies? A little bit, but not quite as, as simply because there are normal developmental differences um, in BMI, and so what's a normal BMI at one uh, age in childhood is not the same mm -hmm. as another, whereas it's a, it's a little perhaps more constant over adulthood. And so in children, often the norms are to use BMI Z-scores, which are a, a nonlinear transformation uh, because they're based on historical. It's not a, it's not a standard Z-score in the statistical sense of just uh, subtract a mean and divide by a standard deviation. It's sort of norming it to some prior data 
and those are age corrected. So that's the more common thing used for kids. So then you just start worrying if a kid is, is too many standard deviations above the, the average weight for their age. Right, or people will just use percentiles and uh, too many, you know, too high percentiles. So some of the some of the problems and challenges uh, studying this, um, some of the early controversies from I think the beginning of you know back in 2010 2011, um, where we were studying the there were studies on the impact of uh, soda and soda manufacturers, and I know that you were involved in in uh, in some of this. Um, the question I have is how do you sort of tease out when someone's obese? There are lots of factors involved. There are lots of variables involved in this. And how do you, how do you sort that? Uh, and I know what sometimes what comes into this is the differences between correlation and causation. We've talked about that a lot on, on stats and stories. Could you tease this out a little bit for us? Sure. There's a distinction that's often made in the legal context that I think may be useful in response to your question, which is the distinction between specific causation and general causation. So, for example, in a legal case where a person has been exposed to something X and has an outcome Y, and we ask, did the exposure to X cause the outcome Y for that person? Usually there's first a general causation question that's answered, mm -hmm. which is, can X cause or does X cause Y in general? And then if and only if the answer is convincingly yes, do we go to a specific causation, which we say, does this person's instance of having Y result from their having been exposed to X? And those are two very different questions. The general causation question, we have much better methods for dealing with. And the ideal, of course, there is randomized controlled trials. Mm -hmm. So in an ideal world, we randomly assign individuals to be exposed to X or not be exposed to X or to eat X and not eat X if it's a food. Um, and then we measure Y and we do all the right controls and it's a good experiment, a good randomized controlled trial. And then we have the ability to draw causal, strong causal inferences. Many people will correctly say that there are times when for practical or ethical or other issues, we cannot do those randomized controlled trials or we can, but simply haven't yet got those in hand, and we may sometimes draw tentative um, judgments about causation in the absence of those, but we have to then recognize that those judgments are tentative and not extremely well supported. Now, the, the specific causation question is different. You say, how do I know that this child's mm -hmm. obesity or this adult's obesity is due to their having consumed X or not done enough activity or whatever it is. In those cases, it becomes much more conjectural and uh, we don't have a, such well-established methods. But you sort of look and say, were they confidently exposed to this? And um, mm -hmm. sometimes you can do things, say, if we withdraw it, do they lose weight? Clinically, that's really how it's done. Clinically, you just say, if for example, if you had a child who drank a great deal of soda, and was overweight, you might say, I don't know that the soda is what's making you overweight, but you don't need to drink soda. So stop drinking the soda mm -hmm. and let's see what happens. And if you lose weight, that's great. And if you don't, probably good to stop drinking the soda anyway. And let's find some other things mm -hmm. that we can try to change to help you lose weight. 
So I, I was really interested in the, the paper that, that you worked on with a, a team of colleagues last year that was related to childhood obesity and intervention studies. And you talk about this as a narrative review and a guide for investigators, authors, editors, reviewers, journalists, and readers to guard against exaggerated effectiveness claims. I mean, I, I, I'm glad they don't charge by the, the word in your titles here. You know, that, that's a, that was a mouthful. So, so what, what is it that inspired you and your colleagues to, to work on this, this paper and, and try to clarify these issues for these different audiences? I think it just comes from years of, of reading the literature, of responding to journalists' questions, of talking to teachers and parents and funders and public health people who are often confused and misled by statements in the mass media. Mm -hmm. And when you trace those back, they're often being misled by statements coming out of academics or uh, other government researchers and so on. And, you know, we often in academia, we like to blame the journalists a lot. And that's okay, because I think the journalists do a lot of poor reporting at times and deserve some blame. But guess what? Uh, people who have looked at this carefully have also shown that journalists often get the health stories wrong when the scientist has fed them exaggerated information. Mm -hmm. So we have met the enemy and it is us. Oh. And uh, it was sort of that recognition of how much misinformation was out there and how it was leading to wasted resources and repeating the same failed efforts over and over that led us to uh, write this paper. In, in working with journalists over the years, um, what, what's been your sort of biggest frustration in terms of how your own work is covered and what are some of the some of the things that that we can we can tell you know our student journalists uh, when they're covering science and statistical studies? This is complicated material, and a lot of journalists aren't trained in this. Um, what should they be doing uh, to to ensure that they're getting they're going to tell the best best story they can? Perhaps what they need to do is try not to tell the best story and to tell the most accurate story, even if it's not always the most compelling mm -hmm. story. And I think that's where uncertainty comes in. There was a single word that I would say is at the root or essence of the response to your question. It is uncertainty. I think part of what makes a scientist a good scientist is perversely, perhaps, the acceptance of ignorance. Mm -hmm. That is not that we accept that we will remain ignorant, we're always working to become less ignorant, but that we accept that we are ignorant and we don't have to cover that up. And yet the journalists often want a cleaner story, mm -hmm. a story in which we know things, a story in which things are more certain, as opposed to a story in which we say, well, we've got some initial results here and they're promising, but we're not sure it's causation. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with David Allison, Dean and Provost Professor at Indiana University in Bloomington. You know, I, I thought your point about acceptance of ignorance is a really, really important one. I think there's this general willingness to be wrong that has to be, that's part of the scientific process, mm -hmm. that you're willing to reject what you've, what you've held to be true. Uh, I, I found it interesting in looking at your, your article that, that you mentioned this idea of a white hat bias. Mm -hmm. which which I had, had not seen before. Hey, that was one of my questions. That was one of your questions? <laughs> yeah. I was peeking at your notes. I so love that. Yeah. <laughs> so can, can you talk a little bit about, about how, how that's, that's really a, a 
what that is and why that's a really bad thing to have have happen. Yeah. So, you know, human beings are human beings. We all have biases. There's no way around it. Science itself, as Adam Smith once said, is the antidote to the poison of superstition and enthusiasm, <laughs> or you might more broadly say of biases. Science is a bias reduction process, but we need to use it to reduce bias. So we rely on things like blinding and randomization and so on. Often there's a thought that only certain kinds of biases prevail, but in fact, everybody has biases. And one of the most potent ones is what, what we and others have called white hat bias. And that makes a reference to sort of the, the good guys in the old cowboy movies wearing the white hats. Mm -hmm. And that if you're wearing the white hat, you think you're righteous. And if you're pursuing righteous ends, then perhaps it's okay to bend the truth mm -hmm. in the pursuit of righteous ends. And as a scientist, I don't think it's ever okay to bend the truth. Mm -hmm. and, um, but we, we see that this seems to be occurring in certain areas, and childhood obesity is one where it seems especially strong, where people are passionate, they have good intentions, they want to protect children, as we all do and should, they want to improve the public health, as we all do and should, and they believe they know the right answers for that. And they are willing to push those right answers, even if it means bending the truth sometimes. And that's not okay. So, what are the costs of this? I mean, they're, you know, the, so talk a little bit about the these when you have these claims of exaggerated effectiveness, even if it's based on someone who has, you know, sort of in their in their own minds a good heart. What's what's the damage ultimately that could accrue as a result? The costs can be pursuing treatments that are not only not effective but that are harmful. That's rare, but possible. So for example, uh, Dr. Gary Foster and his team published a paper about a year ago showing that free breakfast provision in schools seemed to lead to more obesity in children. And you only know that if you do the study, and he did a rigorous randomized controlled trial and found that out. Um, but that's uncommon. What's more mm -hmm. common is that we will spend resources and efforts on things that are ineffective. Mm -hmm. uh, and examples would be promotion of increased fruit and vegetable consumption for children or adults, for that matter, as a weight loss strategy. That alone is not an effective weight loss strategy, and yet it's still promoted, even though we have evidence that it's not effective. What that does is it leads individuals to not try other things because they're trying that. It leads researchers to continue to try to invest money in those things when they should be investing in investigating others. It leads school districts and funders and public health organizations to be funding ineffective things. It leads us not to be focusing on effective treatments we have, which for example, in the case of adults, uh, include things like that are much less feel good, but are much more effective, like bariatric surgery and pharmaceuticals and cognitive behavioral treatment in a treatment mm -hmm. setting. How, one of the things that uh, is interesting reading some of your background is how, how you negotiate this uh, sort of getting research funding from industry, food industry, beverage industry. Uh, scientists in general have to sort of negotiate this if you're an academic and working at a university. And then you you sort of open yourself up to charges that... Uh, that you're, you know, you're a, you're doing science that's going to promote a particular agenda that the the food industry might have. Over your years as a researcher and scientist, how have you negotiated this 
And is this something that the journalists could do a better job covering this sort of uh, area that where, you know, you're, you're doing both in industry research and non-industry type research? Sure. I think journalists could do an enormously better job of it. Journalists, like many others, cater to their audiences to a large extent. And the audience is, again, they're us, it's humans, we have our biases. We love stories. We love stories with human elements. We love stories with good guys and bad guys, simple black and white distinctions, as opposed to complexities, nuance, no one's wrong, no one's uh, a bad guy or a good guy, um, but the, the science is what matters. The journalists, unfortunately, often look for to make it personal, and they engage in ad hominem attacks and talk about the characteristics of the researcher, and that including funding source, and that's just antithetical to the spirit of science. Mm -hmm. We need to say it is the science that matters. As I have said repeatedly in my writings and speaking, there are three things that matter in science. The data, the methods by which the data are collected, mm -hmm. which give them their probative value, and the logic connecting the data and methods to conclusions. That is the stuff of science, and everything else is a distraction. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me change gears just a, a little bit here. Uh, David, you recently contributed to a, a National Academy's report on reproducibility and replicability in science. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what is reproducibility and replicability? And if you're feeling really ambitious, you can even talk about generalizability. And why are these important ideas for us to think about in science? I would be delighted. Uh, the first thing we need to do is define those terms, and that was what our committee did, because those have been used sometimes interchangeably, including yes. by me and others, sometimes without clear definition. The Academy then, our committee, defined reproducibility as taking the exact same electronic data, running it through the exact same analysis, presumably with the exact same code as originally result, uh, uh, used, and getting the exact same results. So this is essentially computational reproducibility. It's really just showing that you can get what the original investigators get. Doesn't say it was right, doesn't say the data were any good, just says you can find the data, reproduce their calculations, reproduce their answer. Replicability is collecting new data. It's running a new study that essentially answers the same question as the original study, and then asking, do you get roughly the same answer? This gets much more complex, because now what roughly the same means comes to the fore. And that is both what is roughly the same study, or the study of the same question, and what is roughly the same answer mean. And that's difficult to define and the source of much debate and dialogue. As roughly the same study begins to branch out to be broader and broader, we move from replicability to generalizability. And so, for example, if I do a weight loss study of the general public in Bloomington, Indiana, assigned to diet A versus diet B, and then you do the same study in Minnesota, one might argue that that is um, a replication. Alternatively, if I do that study in um, all men and you do that study in all women, is that a replication or are you testing generalizability? It's a matter of judgment at some point. The important thing is if we define and describe precisely what we've done, then people can know and make those judgments. 
this is yeah. You know, this seems like the this is the way that science works. I mean, it's <laughs> not that, and I think that's that suspicion of a you know the, or a, an overemphasis of the result of a single study that often is what gets us in trouble. I mean, I think that a lot of times when you when you see about the overselling of a certain study and the the outrageous engaging headline, it's often it's often that one study and not the preponderance of evidence from multiple studies that you're seeing. I think that's exactly right, and that's the way nutrition and obesity studies are often portrayed in the media. You know, if you think about if you were to read a, a new study about uh, some advance in the space shuttle, you probably wouldn't immediately say, where do I run out and get my ticket to be on the next shuttle? You might read it and say, this is interesting as a member of, of, the, of society at large. I'm interested in the science, but it doesn't affect me today. And yet people read the next study of broccoli or this diet and say, how does this mean I should change my food intake today? So if, if you were going to advise some, someone in terms of uh, interested in working on these, the uh, childhood obesity or research in this area, what are some of the things that, that, that a student should do to get ready to, to work in this space? I would say that the first thing I would hope every student would do is to take a long, hard look in the mirror and look themselves in the eye and say, am I in this to actually collect data to learn something? as opposed to just advance an idea that I've already decided is true. Oh, okay. And if, they've, if they say that they're in it to learn something, to really test ideas, not just to promote ideas, then I think make an unwavering commitment to doing that, to registering your ideas in advance when possible, to collecting data as rigorously as possible, and then to the most unvarnished, scrupulous uh, commitment to truth in reporting possible. We often talk about, uh, you know, one of the things that science does for us is we sort of build on a body of knowledge and we know more than we, we end up knowing more than we used to know. In your study of obesity, how, has, how have the studies, uh, have they improved? What do we know now that maybe we didn't know 10 years ago? Uh, how, would you, how do you feel about that and in terms of your own work as well? It's interesting. Someone paid me a nice compliment after I gave a talk once and said, the thing I like about David Allison's talk is that I always know less when he's done talking. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that in the field of childhood obesity, we do know a lot, but it may not be what we wish we would know. Mm -hmm. Uh, We often know a lot about what doesn't work. So we know, for example, um, that ordinary physical education classes in the schools are not effective in reducing rates of obesity. That's not a happy story. People don't want to believe it in many cases, uh, but we now know that. We know to a reasonable degree of certainty that regular breastfeeding as opposed to not breastfeeding is not an effective way to long-term prevent obesity. Breastfeeding is a good thing. People who can do it should do it, but just doesn't seem to prevent obesity as Mm -hmm. much as we would wish it did. Um, On the other hand, we know certain things can be helpful and effective. So exercise can be helpful for health, even if it doesn't always produce weight loss. We know that exercise can produce weight loss, but, or prevent weight gain, but only if done in sufficient quantities. And so that adherence um, and adherence to large amounts is important. These are a few of the many things we've learned over the years. Uh, They're not always as 
uh, exciting as we would wish in terms of easy public health fixes, but we have learned some things. So John and I want to know how many donuts we should eat each week. <laughs> should, we, should we cut down our donut intake? Is that a good thing? That'll good for what? Like I said, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to work on that donut trail T-shirt this year again. Come on, Richard. You're well, trying to be a sumo wrestler. Very <laughs> well, David, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Truly my pleasure. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.